Hello, everybody. Welcome today. Let's go ahead and get started. Please make sure that you do have a couple of things that you're going to need for today's lesson. You're going to, of course, need the PowerPoint that's attached to the Google uh, lesson or a Google Classroom lesson. You're going to need this audio. Hopefully, you are playing it or else you're not probably doing any of this. Um, the PowerPoint is Indian Independence 2020. Then you have this PowerPoint if you are already on the Google, excuse me, the, the PowerPoint itself. On the second slide, it's going to indicate what you're going to need for this lesson. You're going to need the Indian Timeline 2020. Uh, you'll see that it, it has six boxes, six um, text boxes that you guys are going to be typing into or if you want to write it and then snap a picture, that's absolutely fine. Uh, but you're going to access that. It's on uh, Google Docs. Uh, you're going to need the podcast. You're going to need the PowerPoint, of course. If you have internet access and you have YouTube access, there are going to be some links that I'd like for you guys to watch a couple of clips regarding a movie, Gandhi, that came out in the 1980s. And then you're going to need, for number five here, homework number one, questions one through three. So the first part of this lesson, what we're going to do is we're going to take notes. I'm going to give you some information on the PowerPoint. You're going to fill in your Indian timeline 2020 with the information. And then the second half of your lesson, this is a lesson that is going to be for the entirety of the week. So, you know, if you're, you're restricted on time, I'd say start off with the notes and finish homework questions one, two, and three. And then later on in the week, maybe on a Wednesday or a Thursday, you can continue with the second half of the lesson. And we'll get to that a little bit later on when we hit the, uh, the end of the PowerPoints. All right. So if we go to the third slide today, we're actually this whole unit that we're going to be looking at to conclude the school year is one on decolonization. So if you guys remember, um, after the industrial revolution, our next unit after that was called colonization or imperialism. And in this period of time, mostly Western countries, whites, white countries, Europe, uh, North America, uh, ended up taking over parts of the world, colonizing those parts of the world, imperializing it, conquering it, and would steal resources from those lands as well as use their people for labor and treat those people as second-class citizens. Well, what we're looking at here is the start in what you would refer to as the post-World War II world where imperialism and the old world colonialism, those are all dead terms. There are dead terms that they don't relate to a post-World War II world, post-1945. So after 1945, we're going to see a large increase, not only in Asia with like the Asian subcontinent, uh, with uh, India declaring their independence from British rule, but we're going to notice this in Africa as well. By the time you're hitting the mid-1950s or maybe the 1962, 1963, Africa for the most part is generally liberated. We'll talk about how there's still some connections between African nations and nations, for example, like France. But we'll also look at Southeast Asia and Latin America and how these nations rebelled against imperialism to try to create their own independence. So looking at it from um, our, our first section here for this last unit, we're talking about India. And so let's go back a little bit in context and talk about what India was like before they started their movement towards independence from the British rule. And so your third slide, it says the British in India. Uh, the British in India, it wasn't really the crown or the king or queen of England that was in India. It was actually the British East India Corporation or company. It was a, a trade company. 
And the first time they acquired land was in Bombay in 1615. And from that point, you know, of course, any company wants to make money and they're a trade company. So then not only are they going to be purchasing products and goods from India to sell back in England, but they're also going to want the Indian people to buy British made goods right, and make money in that way or a company to acquire, but also to uh, not just acquire goods, but also acquire money from around the world. And between 1615 to 1757, the British East India Company is going to acquire more and more land, more and more trade opportunities. And slowly but surely, they're going to start to make agreements with different kings or maharajas or princes within India. And they are going to sign trade agreements and treaties with these different princes and kings in the area of India. France around the same time was doing the exact same thing. And then in 1757, there is a major battle, the Battle of Place, where the British went out, the British as well as their different Maharajas and different princes of India uh, are going to win. And from that point forward, for the most part, India is going to be controlled by the British East India Corporation, their king, let's say, their number ones. Now, there's still the different Maharajas, but what the British East India Corporation does is that they slowly consolidate their power by either eliminating their um, their enemies or taking their one-time friends and um, perhaps, I guess the best way of saying this would be to backstab them and eventually not, you know, not just have them sign trading rights, but have them sign over uh, land rights. So by the time we get to 1757, the British East India Company for 100 years, from 1757 to 1857, will rule India as king. And in 1857, there's a major rebellion. Uh, it's called the, the the Great Rebellion from what the Indian perspective was. For many years, it was called the Sepoy Mutiny. As a group of sepoys or Indian, um, Indian soldiers revolted against the British East India Corporation, and for an entire year, from 1857 to 1858, the sepoys attempt to rebel, kick the British out. Um, but the British, the company itself, as well as then the intervening state, the British government comes in, crushes the rebellion, and eventually the British government will take over. It's no longer the East India Corporation, but the crown of England will eventually rule over India. And that period of time in Indian history is known as the Raj. The British imperial system, and this is even dating back before uh, the arrival of the British government, usually placed white Brits as being superior and all others as being inferior. We talked about this during the period of imperialism when we looked at the white man's burden, that it was the burden or this duty of the white man to take over the world um, westernize the world, cleanse the world, give these people, these uh, diverse peoples, what they're lacking, give them hospitals and culture and language that according to the whites was superior. So out with African language, in with English or French or Italian or German, uh, out with awkward cultures, of course, that you know, awkward in the mind of the whites would be awkward and in with white culture, which according to the whites of Europe, or even the United States would be the correct culture. And so as a way of, of eliminating the other and trying to um, perhaps raise them up to a level 
that would be, I, I wouldn't even say equal, raise them up to a level, but probably not equal because the system itself was a very racist system, right? Whites were always seen as superior and anybody else, no matter how much you educated them, no matter how much you provided for them, they were oftentimes seen as inferior or less than what the whites had. So as time passed, eventually we are going to see an increase. And this is not just, of course, in India or Africa around the world, but even within Europe, an increase in the theory of nationalism, that people of a nation state have the right to um, indulge in, love, promote their culture, their national culture, their national essence, their own music, their food, their history. And that nationalism also, within the theory, also dictates that the people of a land should own that land themselves. They should control their own destiny. There should be some sort of self-rule. Well, as the Europeans are promoting this idea in Europe, and Italians, and Germans, and French, and British, and Spanish, and Portuguese, and whatever nation you can come up with in Europe, are all promoting the views of nationalism, eventually... If if Germans are saying that we Germans have a right to our own land, that land of Germany, of Deutschland, belongs to Germans, and we are the ones who guarantee what happens in our lives, or the British are saying, you know, the British Isles, they're our Isles, and so uh, whatever happens in England is because the British people are the ones who who make uh, the call. Well, if, if you are going to go down to Africa, you're going to go down to India, and you are going to teach Indians about the theories of nationalism and how Brits have a land of their own, then eventually the Indians are going to start enjoying and coming up with the same theories themselves to say, wait a second, you, you as a Brit have the right to your land. And I, as an Indian have no right to my land because you say that I don't have that territory. That territory is British. It's not Indian. It's British owned or Africans, for example, being told this from, French, as the French go into Africa and say, uh, you're not, you know, this land is not your land. It's part of the French empire. Well, you, eventually you're going to be ca- uh, catching yourself um, in a, um, a catch-22 where you cannot promote it and then eventually have the people that you're trying to conquer, uh, um, suppress, uh, eventually say, wait a second, if nationalism is good for you, then why is it not good for, for me? If the French say that all men are created equal in their, their French revolutionary documents, like the, the, um, the Declaration of the Rights of Man, or the U.S. Constitution says all men are created equal, why is it that whites are created more equal than others? Right? So you end up in this middle of this ground of hypocrisy. Whites are saying we have the right to rule our land and control our own destiny. All men do, but not those men of different colors. That does not end up working at all. And so as nationalism rises, surely it's going to rise amongst Africans, and it does rise in India, uh, Latin America as well. But here we are looking at India, and Indians started to begin the first steps of demanding self-rule, this idea that India should be owned by Indians. Now, for our, our fourth slide, you have the information here. You have two colors, right? The information, the question says, that, or the statement at the top says, Hindu Indian National Congress, 1885, and the Muslim League, 1906. What you guys have in the black font, that is just some information. What you are going to write down in the box is going to be specifically the red, because in the box itself, it's asking you, 
about how each of these events um, contributed to national independence for India. So it's not that you're describing the event, you're indicating how this event helped lead to an independent uh, uh, Indian state. And so for the first part, we're looking at the Hindu Indian National Congress and then the Muslim League. So within India, uh, there is a, quite a, a, a huge amount of diversity uh, within India. But if you're looking at it from a religious perspective, as well as a, um, I would say, even cultural perspective, the majority of people who live in India are Hindus. Uh, I think the number is something around maybe 60 to 70 percent are Hindus. And then the minority groups are mostly Muslim as well as Sikhs. And so if you have 70% of the majority are Hindu and a minority group, let's say 25, 30%, or, you know, of course that might be 40 or, uh, of, of Muslims. And here we have two groups, two religious groups that historically in India have not gotten along all that well. Um, there are stories of Hindu Kings slaughtering Muslims, Muslim Kings slaughtering Hindus, and, uh, it's gone back and forth and back and forth. So there's a lot of history of hatred and animosity long ago. We're talking about thousands of years ago in India. But the Hindu Indian Congress, the Indian, excuse me, the Hindu Indian National Congress, if you notice the word Hindu in it, you might think to yourself, well, wait a second, it, it must just be for Hindus. And so in 1906, when the Muslim League made their own group, their own uh, group to protest British rule and eventually fight for Indian rule, or, or it, it must be based on religious lines. Well, even though the word Hindu is in the Hindu Indian National Congress, the National Congress it's, itself was actually controlled and had leaders that were Muslim and spoke for many years for both Muslims and for Hindus as well. But both of those groups were formed to speak on behalf of the people of India, Hindus and Muslims, to potentially find a way of getting rid of British foreign rule um, you know, they, they both have a shared heritage of British rule and they both understand democratic ideals because they were raised in the modern era on British democracy. And so both of these groups, sometimes together and sometimes separately, would work towards the goal of British independent, uh, Indian independence from England. And so both of these groups, if you guys press the button, you're going to see that the red term is going to come up or the red lines are going to come up. It says it gave a political voice to the Indian people, right? So instead of just being, um, you know, Indians and not, you know, perhaps being taken uh, advantage of the British, if there is a political group, a group that exists to, to attempt to speak for the whole of India or the whole of Muslims and Hindus and maybe even Sikhs as well, uh, this is a major step in having the Indian people be heard if they have political groups that can advocate for them, that can go and uh, protest and go tell the British, look, you, you are treating us unfair. We want independence and we, we are not willing to take anything else. So both of them work towards the goal of independence from British rule. They both gave the Indian people a political voice. All right, moving on to the next one here. This will be the fifth slide, but number two on your sheet, World War I, 1914 to 1918. Um, World War I breaks out in 1914, and there are many in the British Empire that are willing to go fight for England. Uh, Australians will go fight for England because Australia was part of the British Empire. 
New Zealanders will go fight for England because they were part of the British Empire. Canadians will go and fight. And Indians are going to go and fight as well. However, for India, and I think there's some arguments to be made even about Aussies and uh, the Kiwis of New Zealand, that upon World War I was really the breaking point for separation from England and becoming more of a, a separate state, still connected within the English Commonwealth, but uh, dr- driving for what it meant to be Australian, not a British citizen, but an Australian or a New Zealander. World War I is a major breaking point. But uh, the Indians, you know, seeing that there are millions of Indians, and if the Indians were to serve in the British Army and actually go and fight in World War I, there would be no way, no way in hell that the Germans could potentially win. This is one of the problems that Germany saw from the very get-go in World War I. If England owns a half of the world, and let's say a massive amount of population between England and Canada and India and Australia and Burma and New Zealand, there is no way that Germany with their, you know, their four locations in Africa could ever raise an army that could potentially stop the British and then the French empire. And then eventually the Americans jump in no way possible. And so the the British are really working with their numbers here that they might have enough um, supplies, enough men to, it, it might drag on for a couple of years, but they know that there's a potential that just the human element, the population alone, that the Brits and the French and the Americans, the allied forces would eventually win. If the Indians are going to join, however, there is going to be some sort of settlement about what India would get if they did participate in the First World War. And India wants self-rule. They want a government that will promise Lisa British to promise them reforms, changes now that would eventually lead to self-government. The Indians want their independence. They want to rule themselves. And so the British, in order to pacify the Indians, to make them peaceful, they nodded their heads and the British system told them, the British government told them, yes, if you fight for us, we will look at reforms and we will eventually give you self-government. So when In 1918, the war is over and Britain is on the victorious side. Many Indians came back to India, high-fiving one another, thinking, let's see if we got our independence. We're going to get our independence. And England said, "Eh, well, we're going to give you independence, but not now. We're going to give it in the future. And we don't know when. And so the, the Indians felt backstabbed. They felt completely betrayed. The idea was we will serve in your army if by the time we win, you're going to grant us changes that would lead to our self-rule. And the Indians, you know, completely were uh, kind of slapped around and made out to be a laughing stock. Now, this is not going to be, this is going to be a lot different come World War II because there's already going to be a lot of built up animosity and hatred between the Indians and the Brits that when World War II takes place and England says, and even Winston Churchill would say, you know, um, that these, these great communities far beyond the oceans who have been built up on our laws and on our civilizations and are absolutely free to choose their course, but they're absolutely devoted to the ancient motherland and are inspired by some, get whatever, element of courage that uh, they're going to stake their duty upon honor and indicating that, yes, India will, will fight for us. India will not. India is never going to forget the backstabbing that happened in World War I, and they will not fight for England. Until later on, when, when the... When the Japanese start to get uncomfortably close to India and the Japanese as an Asian people are slaughtering and murdering Asians, 
then the Indians have to make a choice. The Indians have to look at themselves in the mirror and say, okay, okay, hold on, hold on. The Japanese are coming. They say that they're liberating Asia for Asians, and we're hearing stories of them slaughtering Asians. The British, who we know are treating us as second-class citizens, but there's a sense, a general sense of fairness within the government. It's almost like the there's the enemy I know and the enemy I don't know. And towards the end of the Second World War, India will make the choice of fighting for really self-protection in the Second World War and joining uh, the British. So um, I'm just going to read through this. Uh, Until World War I, the vast majority of Indians had little interest in nationalism, but the situation changed as over a million Indians enlisted in the British Army and then returned for their service. The British government promised reforms that would eventually lead to self-government. What you're writing in your box for number two, many Indians returned from war and expected self-rule. They showed that the British would not keep their word, and this led to an increase in radical nationalism and acts of violence. So the moment that the Indians felt backstabbed, then at that point, the uh, Indian people and their political groups are going to take it up a notch and become more um, or increasingly violent or increasingly pressing the idea that India is no longer really a colony. It is going to be a free state at some point. Moving on to the sixth slide, which is going to be number three on your paper, the Rolodex of 1919. So to curb dissent in 1919, the British passed the Rolodex. This comes out of the disappointment that the Indians had for their lost opportunities to get an independent state. And the British are completely changing their law in order to put down many of these protests. So the law itself allowed the government to throw people in jail, protesters, without trial by jury. For as long as two years. Now, in Western society, that does not take place, right? John Locke talking about life, liberty, and property. Uh, the Magna Carta. Uh, these are both, you know, an Ind- British Enlightenment thinker and the paperwork of the Magna Carta saying that there is due process, that um, you basically have the right to be heard and be judged. You cannot just throw somebody in prison. Well, it, it showed the Indian people how. Um, vile the British system was and how deeply entrenched England would be in India, uh, taking the wealth, taking the resources for as long as possible that the British would be interested in even manipulating and changing the law so they could stay in power in India. And so to Western educated Indians, the denial of trial by jury violated their basic rights as Indian citizens. And so If you guys press the button, you'll see the red. It provoked uh, or it proved to the Indians that the British would even manipulate the law and break individual rights to hold power. And this, of course, is going to increase Indian national feelings. So this is not anything that the British are doing to say, all right, all right, all right, we're going to give you a little bit. We're going to concede a little bit. No, this is the British saying to hell with you. We Yes, we backstabbed you. Who cares? India belongs to us, and anybody who protests, you're in jail for two years. Well, it's not how it works for the Indian people. Number four, seventh slide, but number four on your sheet. This is the Amritsar Massacre in 1919. So to protest the Rolodex, about 100,000 Hindus and Muslims flocked to the city of Amritsar in the Punjab in 1919. And they had a, uh, a huge gathering in an enclosed square. And they were going to pray, they were going to um, talk about political uh, speeches, what's our next step, talk about the 
the vileness and the horrors of the British system and eventually try to you know, take the next step. This is mostly, mostly to, to come together and discuss and talk about what the next step was. Well, unbeknownst to many of the people that were at uh, Amritsar, the British, I believe it was either the night before or the day before, had put an order in the city that banned, it might have been the city, might have been the area of all of the Punjab or all of India, uh, banning the gathering of people, the public uh, meetings of people, because of course the Indians are, were going to gather and the British were afraid that if they gathered, then that would lead to more demonstrations and more violence and the British are going to try to do anything to, to stay in power and limit the amount of tension that the Indians are, are gathering against the British system. So people ended up in this middle of this closed square area and the British commander uh, of the Amritsar area drove in with a truck and his soldiers and uh, without really telling the crowd that they were in violation of the law, without asking the crowd to disperse, he opened fire and they continued to shoot for about 10 minutes. Um, I, I believe that within the square that there was a well that men, women, and children were jumping into to try to get away from the gunshots that they were being fired. Um, and of course, the more and more people that are falling, of course, the first, pe first people that are falling then have other people falling on top of them. And those people at the bottom are being crushed by the weight of the next group of people and the next ones and the next ones. Um, as well as, of course, the people who didn't have hiding spaces in this open square and were gunned down. So nearly... 400 Indians died and about 1,200 were wounded. This is a major debacle, uh, a real nasty point uh, in the later part of the British imperial system in India. So if you guys take a moment, please, to watch the YouTube video. If you have an opportunity to, please click on that right now. You can pause um, the uh, podcast, watch the video, and then we'll come back. So hopefully if you watched the, uh, the video, you had an opportunity to see um, what the British did there. Um, nastiness. And even at the end, um, I, I believe if the story is correct, the, I, the general, General Dyer, was allowed to be honorably discharged from the government um, because of this debacle. And upon his discharge, they gave him a sword that was, I think it was gold, it had a gold handle on it, and it was encrusted with rubies and emeralds and diamonds. And, and so what, what this showed for many of the Indian people was that England was not at all um, taking responsibility for the actions, for the horrors of Amritsar, that General Dyer and as well as he and the other leaders were not punished like they should have been, but almost that they were allowed retirement and they were given kind of a golden handshake on their way out with these symbols of greatness, like a you know, diamond encrusted or a jewel encrusted sword. Okay, so um, the fact that now England has opened fire um, on their citizens for simply gathering Yes. Was there a law that was passed, quickly passed? Probably the word was not actually sent out correctly to the individuals to actually give them enough time to say, okay, am I in the right location? Hey, don't forget, disperse or else we're going to have to, I don't know. I don't even know if you'd say open fire at that point. But, um, but the anger of the massacre, the fact that the British jokingly uh, 
uh, did not deal with the atrocity correctly, turned many of those Indians who were loyal British subjects into nationalists demanding for independence overnight. So, you know, mistake, if I'm looking at it from a British perspective, you know, it's mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake. And from an Indian perspective, it's anger and anger increasing and increasing because the British aren't listening. They're not listening to the demands of the Indians. Number five, campaign of civil disobedience, 1920 to 1930s. So this would be uh, the eighth slide, but number five on your note-taking sheet. Um, When the British failed to punish the officers responsible for the Amritsar massacre, this is where we have the introduction of Mohandas K. Gandhi. Uh, Gandhi uh, urged the Indian National Congress, of whom he was a member and president on a couple of occasions, to follow a policy of non-cooperation with the British government, uh, non-violent, non-cooperation, or civil disobedience. So in 1920, the Congress Party endorses civil disobedience. That's the deliberate and public refusal to obey an unjust law and nonviolence as a means to achieve independence. And then Gandhi launches his campaign, his campaign specifically for Indian independence based off of civil disobedience. The YouTube video clip that you have here is actually from a civil disobedience movement. Um, This is from the movie Gandhi, as well as what was the, the previous one. And so this is from South Africa. There was actually quite a bit of Indians who had migrated to South Africa in looking and um, trying to seek uh, work. But the South, South African system of apartheid, uh, apart, apartheid meaning to separate, to keep apart, was a racist system. And so anybody who was non-white was second-class citizens. Uh, so Africans, both blacks and others, including Indians, uh, were forced to have to walk around with um some sort of ID card where not, or the white ones did not. Uh, and so what you're seeing here in this video clip is going to be an example of civil disobedience. And before maybe you watch the the clip, understand that civil disobedience and nonviolence means that whatever the British say, you know, if the British say, for example, and, and it has to be in context, it has to be something that would make the British money. If the British said, we want everybody to go to work tomorrow because England needs to, you know, make sure that we collect your taxes and we need to make money. Then you don't go. If it's going to benefit the British and it's going to take away from the Indian people, then you don't do it. Um, if they say, uh, you're all going to go to work. And I think Gandhi on a couple of occasions said, nope, guess what? Today's a religious holiday. We're all staying home. So you're, you're impacting the British system, British imperialism economically. The British are not making their money. And if the companies that are British companies in India aren't making their money, then that anybody gets hit in their wallet. That's difficult. I mean, you know, boycotting things like that. If you were to boycott McDonald's, you know, McDonald's being uh, a company, but you know, owned by different owners, those owners would probably, you know, voice their opinion to the corporation and say, Hey, something's got to change. You know, we're not doing something right. People aren't buying. And if we're not making money, we're losing money. That means that we need to listen to the people who are arguing against us, um, or who are saying that we're doing something wrong, you know, if you hit them in their wallet, maybe they'll they'll listen. Now, of course, you know, if if the British said, "Okay, we want everybody to stay home," <laughs> it's not that the Indians are going to say, "No, we're going to go to work." No, that's not how it works, right? It's r- deliberate and public refusal to uh, obey an unjust law and an unjust law that would usually benefit the British and take away from the uh, the native Indians. So take a moment to watch the uh, YouTube video clip. This is supposed to be kind of an early level entry into Gandhi, and it's supposed to just show you kind of the idea of civil disobedience.
if you've watched the video clip and now you're back with me over here, one of the things I think you, I, I really want you to notice is that Gandhi wants there to be a response. There has to be a response because if you take a civil disobedience course, if you take uh, a means of nonviolence, and let's say you say, that's it, I'm, I'm not going to buy something, I'm going to stay at home. Well, that might be fine. It might be one or two or three or four people. And maybe the, the whatever it is that you're boycotting, they, maybe they don't react. But according to Gandhi, you, you need to do something that is going to make a reaction. And sometimes the reaction might be to concede and the government realizes that they're wrong. And sometimes the reaction might be violence. That if you, through your nonviolent action, can make the other strike you, you can piss them off so much that they're going to strike you. It's almost as if you're taking the power away from them. You know, there's there's something that has to be said, and I know this doesn't go along with World War II history, but when you are dealing with people who actually have a heart, if you are in a fight and you refuse to lift up your hands, if you refuse to defend yourself as they are striking you, after a while, there's something that you are doing psychologically to the individual that's beating you. There's only so much that a person who actually has a, a rational head and heart will do if you're not putting up a defense. Right? And after a while, the person who's hitting now feels like trash. And it might not be one person. It might not be two or three people. But after a while, if you take a nonviolent approach, then it shows the person who's being violent is, is in the wrong. And then the people who are being nonviolent are, aren't doing anything wrong. They're, yeah, they're provoking, but doesn't mean that just because they provoke you that you have to you know, swing back or swing at them. It's like a, you know, one of your brothers and sisters saying, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. And then eventually you get so upset that you smack them. And then, you know, they run to your mom and they say, oh, he smacked me. What are you? Well, he was, he was, you know, he, he wasn't touching me, but he kind of was, but he wasn't, but he was angry. You're in the wrong now. As, as much as they might be provoking you, now you're in the wrong. So uh, looking, looking at this, um, as far as what you guys should be writing down, please make sure you locate the, uh, the red here. Um, this weekend, the British government's authority and economic power over India, it led to mass demonstrations, often violent. Uh, boycotts cost the British system plenty, They're taking a huge economic toll on the British. They struggled to keep trains running, factories operating, and overcrowded jails from bursting. Because even though the, the Indians were going through their civil disobedience, the, the British government thought, well, let's just arrest them. We'll arrest thousands. We'll arrest hundreds of thousands, and we'll just throw them in jail. And, you know, well, there's only so much you can put in jail. And what happens if you arrest Gandhi? You know, if you, the idea maybe you not kill him, but you cut the head of the snake off. If you take Gandhi, who's the, the mastermind behind it, and you throw him in jail, perhaps the protests, they lose their leader and the protest kind of fizzles out. Uh, and on the occasions where Gandhi was arrested, it did not fizzle out. It only got even uh, more heated. All right, if we're looking at the next one, number six on your packet, number nine on the slide, and you're going to see the Salt March of 1930. So 1930, Gandhi organizes a demonstration to defy the Salt Acts. The Salt Acts stated that Indians could only buy salt from the British. So even though you might have a salt factory that is Indian-owned, um, you can't buy from the Indians. That means all money has to go to the British when you need to buy salt. And salt is, salt is life in India. You need it to cure uh, meats, for example, and you need it to, um, to 
keep your food uh, longer, as well as, of course, salt for, for flavor. Um, but this is salt. Salt is part of life. And so Gandhi organized a huge march towards the sea, to the Indian Sea. And from there, they would take the salt water, they would evaporate it. And what was left behind, of course, processing it, they would make salt and the salt belonged to everybody. It was free. And it was another way of targeting the British, specifically illegal or wrong laws or acts, according to uh, to Gandhi. And uh, it was known as the Salt March. And so there you have a little video clip of it. It'll start at the march where Gandhi says, let us go. And he'll go all the way to the waters. And at the very end, you'll see what he says. So take a moment to watch that clip. Now, notice in the clip what he was saying when he left. He was talking to an American, um, I think it was an American journalist. And the American journalist was asking, well, what happens if they arrest you? What happens if they don't arrest you? What happens if they do nothing? Well, if they arrest me, it's still going to happen. And if they don't arrest me, then we'll continue to kind of prod at them and do that whole, you know, I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you to anger them because civil disobedience, that one of the major acts is to provoke a response. And when you provoke the response, whether that response is good or bad, right, you're going to find out more about your enemy, more about the British, and maybe even the world can find out more about what is happening in India that is wrong. So I'm reading from the the, the third bullet point. So soon afterwards, some demonstrators planned a march to a site where the British government processed salt, a little salt works. Police officers with steel tip clubs attacked demonstrators, an American journalist, and I believe it's the individual that you see in the, uh, the movie, was an eyewitness to the event. He said, uh, that he was sickened or sickened wax of clubs on unprotected skulls and people. People were writhing in pain with fractured skulls and broken shoulders. And still the people continued to march peacefully, refusing to defend themselves against their attackers. And you'll see a video clip of that. So take a moment to watch that video clip. Now, pretty sickening. You guys are coming back now. Pretty sickening when you get to a couple of those marchers who are simply just moving forward, right? They're not lifting up their hands and hear Indian soldiers, not the British themselves, right? But Indian soldiers are the ones who are coming forth and telling those individuals that it's closed. The salt works are closed. You cannot come in here and just cracking them over the skulls uh, and injuring these people. And so for your chart, the sixth one, it says uh, in red down here, stories of the march and subsequent other marches, so not only the Salt March, but then eventually the Salt Works March, were carried by newspapers around the globe. This won worldwide support for Gandhi's independence movement. So now not only is it England or the British system against the Indian people, now it's the British system against the Indian people, and the Indian people might have world public opinion in their favor. So the next time something comes around, uh, England, you know, maybe they're talking to the leader of France and leader of France or the United States. And they say, you know, I think you should really consider what's going on in India. We don't like it when we hear of innocent people that are being hit by clubs. And that might put pressure, uh, economic pressure, political pressure on England that they might have to bow down to what the Indians want if they feel if England's feeling this pressure from around the world. Eventually, about 60,000 people, including Gandhi, were arrested um, even though there were more demonstrations that were taken against assault acts in India. So please make sure you write that last red one down in your note sheet. So that note sheet completed, that alone is 50 points. So please make sure that you have that done. Make sure you snap a picture of that. And by the end of the week, that's going to be one of three things that you're going to be turning in. So here we are on the 10th slide. It's the very last one. So what's next for India? 
All right, you're going to access the PDF file. And we have to go to back to an, our old book that we were using, not at the beginning of the year, but from last year. So you guys started off this year with the orange book and then eventually went to the blue. But because of the COVID virus, um, we decided that we're not going to purchase new books. So we're going back to the old ones from last year. So you have that PDF file. It's chapter 18, section one. You'll need pages 563 to 569 to continue the story. What happens after Gandhi's arrest all the way through to Indian independence? You need to access then the page that you see here on this 10th slide. It says using these pages from the textbook, complete the Indian subcontinent achieves freedom sheet. You have seven questions. You can either type this or once again, just like you've done it on other sheets, you can write them down on a sheet of paper and snap a picture. And then to conclude the, the section, which hopefully I, I think the due date is going to be on Friday. So this lesson was issued on Monday, on Friday when you complete with this. Remember, break it off into two days. If you can do it all one day, great. But if you want to uh, break it off in two days, you just completed the notes, then I'd say uh, do the second half for a later day. You have seven questions to work on, uh, on the steps that India took, as well as Pakistan to achieve their freedom. And then you want to complete your homework questions, number one, the remainder of them, questions four through six. So questions one, two, and three, you should be able to answer based off of the notes that we took today. And then questions four, five, and six, you should be able to answer from the textbook or as you're reading through the textbook and completing questions one through seven on this worksheet that you see in front of you, the little guided reading, you should be able to answer the questions there. All right. So um, I'll, I'll set the due date for Friday and um, hopefully everybody has an opportunity to work on this guys. Take care and we will talk soon. Bye-bye.